Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and look at your word. We ask that you guide and lead us through this very fascinating chapter in, in Micah and that you will show us what you'd have us to see and that your Holy Spirit will lead. And we just thank you for all that you've done in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Micah chapter 7. If we manage to finish this chapter, we'll go into James next week. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape, grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desires the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. They that may do evil with both hands earnestly, the prince asks and the judge asks for a reward. And a great man, he utters his mischief, mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your, of your watchman and your visitation comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust not in a friend. Put not your confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore will I look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So we're going to look at this first uh, little paragraph. And Micah starts out with, woe is me. Alas, you know, everything is bad. And what he's going to describe is a really bad situation when you think about it. And it really is a picture of where we're headed at in our world, where we have all this trouble. But also he was looking at all the sin and the mischief of his day as they're headed into captivity. But he says, for I am as they, as when they have gathered the summer fruit as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desires the first ripe fruit. The summer fruit or the gleanings, that's the leftovers, basically. And he's saying, you know, I feel like things are so bad that I just feel like I'm the gleanings. Many of us have probably been there at various times in our life where we just think that there's nothing right going on. God's, God's not loving me enough to give me what I want, and we're dry and we're thirsty. And we're looking at God and saying, God, what is going on? This is where Micah's at. <laughs> He's going, I wish that I was back when, in, the, in the first fruits, the best of the fruits, the, the large clusters. If you've ever had a garden, your first, your first fruits that come out of the garden are really good. And then all, the rest of the summer long, they, if you get more than one uh, crop, they progressively get smaller or, or less. And... This is where God, when he asked for the Jews to give, he said, I want of the first fruits of your, of your labors. He wanted them to give him of the very beginning things so that he would be able to say, trust. Trust that you're going to have that second, third, fourth harvest, but give me of the first. And God is always wanting that, and we, we share this. When, when we look what God wants, he wants the first of our money. He doesn't want what's left over. He wants us to honor him and say, here. And this is where Mike is at. He says, Lord, I'm feeling used up. This happens frequently, especially if we're trying to serve God in our own strength. We end up in a place where we feel used up and, and tired and, and just exhausted. And this is true of all the, many of the great uh, pastors and missionaries of this world. You read their autobiographies and, and God would do something really big in their life. They'd have a great revival or a great ministry come out and the next thing you know they're depressed. God didn't use them enough or a certain person they expected didn't respond or whatever reason they'd get depressed. Micah is in this, these kind of throws. We see it in Elijah as well. Elijah was always griping to God, you know, God, I'm the only one left. There's nobody, nobody coming, to, you know, coming to help. And, and God kept having to remind him, no, you're not the only one left. I've got a remnant. Get, get going. And we look at this. It says, Micah saying, The good men have perished out of the earth. There is none upright among the men. 
all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man, his brother, with a net. You see how depressed he is at this point? Yeah. He's going, there's nobody good out there. Everybody is out to get probably him more than is what he's looking at. And if you look at these prophets, we, we kind of look at the prophets and say, what a nice job they had. They were esteemed and everything. Micah kept get kept get, uh, uh, Jeremiah kept getting thrown into cisterns and prisons. Isaiah kept getting thrown out of the courts of the king and, and criticized. Uh, it said that he was eventually sawn, stuffed into a log and sawn in half. So we look at this and we think, oh, these prophets, are, they, they have life so good for them. But in reality, most of them did not. They, because most of the time, if you look at their message, they were saying, King, get, get right with God or you're going to be judged. And if we think about that, how accepted would that message be? How would you like to be given a message to go to Washington, D.C. and go into Congress or the President's office and say, get right or the country's going to be destroyed? Number one, you probably wouldn't stand up very long before, they, before, the, before the guard came and drug you out. <laughs> and even if you were able to get the whole message out, what was the likelihood of you being criticized by the newspapers and, and everybody who heard that message? This is one of the things that's hard to do is stand up and speak what God says, especially when it's not popular. And we're seeing this more and more in our world that the message that people are having to give is being watered down so that they can stay popular. And a lot of these big churches have a message that's so watered down you can't even find it in the Bible. They don't call sin a sin. They don't call people to repentance. They don't, they don't call people to come to Christ to go to heaven. Not all big churches, but a lot of them are that way. We have whole denominations that have watered down the word of God and accept sin within their church. And so we're, we're looking at here, Micah's speaking for God, and what he sees in return is a lot of people that are just coming against him. And he is falling into depression. It says in verse 3, They that do evil with both hands earnestly, the prince asks and the judge asks for reward, the great man utters his mischievous desires. He's saying... The courts, the princes, are all asking for bribes. Yeah. And it appears to be that way in our country. It's not quite that bad compared to other countries. There are countries where you can't get anything done unless you're willing to pay bribes to the, to the, business, to the, to the government and leaders. And a lot of them in South America. If you want to do anything in South America, you better be ready to, to pay. It doesn't cost you much, but you've got to be ready to pay bribes to get anything done whether it's allowed or not, they don't let you have it until you're ready to grease the palms and get it, get it accomplished. A lot of places in Asia are the same way. We're starting to see it even in, in most of Europe and America. This is a bad place to be. And, and, and Micah's saying all these people are wanting bribes. The, the people are, are doing evil and they're doing it with both hands. He says, the great man, the man of great reward is speaking their mischievous desires, their, their evil desires. I mean, they're being proud of it. Very much the way it is in our day and age where people speak about their sin without any shame, without any concern in some cases, and they just boast about what they're doing. This is not the way we want to see things happen, but this is what's happening out in our world. We're seeing people boast about their sins. All of, you know, we look, at, we look at Hollywood and the stars and the singers and how they boast about the sinful lifestyle they live. And people try to emulate that because God's word isn't being spoken back out against them. You know, all these shows that are, all, you know, talking about their, their these upcoming divorces, the the fornication and adultery of all these, all these people. And they lift them up and people thrive on hearing this garbage. What bugs me is when I'm watching regular news and they start talking about all this tabloid stuff. It's like, why don't we give back to news? There's more than enough news. Let's stop talking about 
all this sinful stuff and trying to make it look good for some reason. Mike is here saying this is the way the people were in his day. You know, lifting up sin, bragging about it, the upright. And then it says their evil desires, so they wrap it up. And it goes back to the first part that they're casting nets. And it literally means weave. He weaves them up. This is a very sad picture that he's seeing of his, of his day. But it also goes to show us again the same thing we say over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. We boast about it. They boasted about it. And we see it over and over. The cycle continues. And we, there's nothing new here. In verse 4 it says, The best of them as a briar... The most upright is sharper than a thorn head. We don't have many thorn hedges around this area. We have all kinds of goat heads and everything. But if you've ever been places, especially in Europe, all the streets and roads are, are lined with these hedges out in the middle of nowhere so that you couldn't get into their fields. And they're thorn hedges. They're, they're, and they are sharp. <laughs> you don't just get into their fields. You have to use the doors and the, and the gates. And he's saying, here he's saying, the best of them are briars. They cause pain when you come near them. And he goes, the most upright are sharper than the thorn hedges. That's pretty prickly situation. These people are not good to be around. They cause injury. Have you been around many people that seem to cause injury just by getting near them? We were talking about individuals here that just like to criticize, like to like to make other people miserable in some way making themselves feel better by making others feel miserable. Why they do that? I don't know. I don't know how making other people feel bad makes, makes you feel good yourself, but that may be because God doesn't let us do that and God says to edify and build up. But I've been around the world long enough to know that there are a lot of worldly people who if they're not trying to make others miserable don't feel alive. And here he's saying, the best of the people around me, the best are that way. That's a pretty sad state to be in when, when your best people are that way. He says, their watchmen and their visitation comes. Now shall they be, shall, now, shall their now shall be their perplexity. They think they're doing right and they're going to be judged. Their visitation refers to judgment. Their watchmen aren't watching. And, and even if they are, they see the, they see the punishment coming. And they're going to be perplexed. Have you ever been around a person or maybe been there yourself where you started doing things thinking you were right and then all of a sudden you got the judgment of God upon you or they got the judgment of God upon them for their misbehavior? And there's this perplexity. What, what was done wrong? What was done wrong? And the people are looking at them and say, well, you know, you were putting people down, you were trying to make yourself look good, and you think that that was good, and God says, no, he's not going to let it happen. We reap what we sow. Always reap what we sow, eventually. And this is why David in so many of the Psalms and many of the Psalmists said, you know, God, how long are you going to wait? <laughs> These people have been been bad and it looks like they're getting away with it. God does things in his own time but they will reap what they sow. And this is very interesting when they need somebody to trust them and they've been sowing distrust all their life. It goes back to the old uh, uh, fable the boy who called wolf too many times when the wolf finally showed up nobody, nobody came because he he'd, he'd called out he'd lied to them so often. We see this in the world as well. People call out wolf so many times that, God, you know, that when it's finally God brings the judgment on them, nobody, be, nobody believes it. And he's saying their judgment's coming and they're going to be perplexed. And he says, trust not in a friend. Do not put confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. This is, again, very negative. In one sense, we are not to trust our, you know, put our trust in our friends because we need to put our trust in God. Friends will always fail us at some point. And guides are not where we want our confidence. We want our confidence in God. And this is actually a good statement, even though it's very negative. 
And he says, watch, watch your mouth <laughs> amongst your intimate friends. In this case is what he's talking about. Keep your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. How many times do we say things with close friends that we probably shouldn't say? Yeah. I've got, I know a number of people and they'll talk about how they get together and all of a sudden their mouths start running and they start talking about things they shouldn't talk about and, and jesting with one another and foolish jesting, all the things God says he's going to hold us accountable for. And usually we do this kind of things when we get around good friends or friends we just feel comfortable with. And we start just saying things we shouldn't think, doing things we shouldn't do. Sometimes get ourselves into lots of trouble. Are we staying with righteous conversation? Are we honoring God with all of the people that we hang with? And this will happen when you do gather friends together for a party or whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, tongues start flapping and people start one-upping each other, trying to get a, the best story or the, the sweetest gossip or whatever it might be. And we see all of this going on with people. And he's looking at this and saying, and then he goes even worse. For son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemy are those men of his own house. Again, it's not something new, but Jesus said, Jesus also said that in the last days, all of this stuff would happen. Child will rise up against their parent, parent against their child, and, and here's the same thing that Micah's saying. In some ways, I think Micah's talking about the end days here as well. But he's talking about this whole evil world system. How easy it is for the family to come up against family. And matter of fact, it hurts most when your family attacks you because they're the ones you expect to be able to support you. And when they attack, it's even worse than when the, the rest of the world attacks. When our children, we get, we're trying to honor God and show God in them and they attack us, you know, saying, well, you know, that's not how you were back when I was being raised or, or whatever it is, or that's not how you've lived, you know, and they come against us as we're trying to live for God. And they tear apart. And we saw that during Hitler's regime where he got broke up families where he would get families to report their you know their 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 other the rest of their families and <clears throat> we see that that's going to happen in the future when Jesus said that the last days this is going to happen. And we see even the the bits and pieces of it today that God has shown us that people are still battling against their families. They're attacking their families. They're, they're speaking against their families. They're driving wedges amongst family members. And God is saying it's going to happen. Micah's saying it's happening in his day. And the trouble with having our own family attack us. Verse 7 says, Therefore... I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Because everybody else is against him. Micah says, okay, fine, I'll just turn to God. I will look. I will gaze intently at God and, God, and wait for God, the God of my salvation. Have you ever been there where all your hope has to be on God because nothing else seems to be going the right way? Yep. And you just say, God, I'm going to keep all my attention on you because it's the only way you can stay sane. The only way you can see things working right because you just look at God. And you watch for God. And Mike is saying, I'm going to do, I'm going to look at God. I'm going to gaze intently at God and I'm going to wait and hope for God of my salvation. And God will deliver. He always does. Eventually. And we need to be careful that we want to, because we want God to act yesterday, not when God's ready to act. You know, all the time we want God to act yesterday. You know, God, you're, you're kind of slow here. You should have helped me yesterday. I'm still waiting for you. What's wrong with you? And we may not be quite that bold in our words, but we really are in our thoughts when we think about it. Some, when we're complaining, God, why are you letting this happen to me? You know, well, first off, who are we to demand anything from God? You know, what do we deserve from God? Judgment. Punishment. 
for us to be able to say, God, you know, why are you being so slow in your actions? We're kind of forgetting our place in the, in the picture here. This is, I've seen this happen even in the business world. You know, you've got somebody saying, well, you're not moving fast enough on these decisions. They don't know the whole picture. They don't know, the, you know, everything that's needing to be done. You're busy trying to get some other things taken care of that are more important than what they think is important because they don't see the whole picture. And this is, this is something managers learn if they're good managers, that there's certain things that are more important than others because you know you've, you're higher up, you're seeing things. And yet managers will speak against the next level of management who's not answering their questions, their problems fast enough. And that manager's looking and saying, well, your problem's small compared to the, this problem over here. And the person above them is saying, well, your problems are very small compared to what I'm dealing with over and there's other things. And we love to tell God at times, you know, we're at the very bottom of the barrel telling God what's important. Because what's important to me must be important, you know, needs to be the most important thing in the world, universe, anywhere. And we need to just learn God knows what's going on and he will take care of things. And oftentimes he's trying to teach us a lesson. And most of us don't have the patience to be willing to learn God's lessons, and I include myself in that. I don't like to be patient when God's trying to teach lessons. Learning. Learning to try to be more patient. But I'm a very impatient person. I, I'm just like everybody else. I want the answer yesterday, not, not, not even today. Today's too late. I really want it yesterday. But learning to just be patient with God and say, God, you're, you, know what, you know the perfect timing. Because one thing I have learned over the years, when God finally moves as far as I'm concerned, it turns out to be the perfect time for him to move. And, it, and I look around and say, wow, if you'd have done it any earlier, I wouldn't have learned this or that, or I wouldn't have seen it as a miracle, I wouldn't have seen it as your provision. And God likes to step in at the last moment. You know, he wants to make sure that we know that it's him. Because if we had our money given to us for pay the bill three weeks in advance, number one, we probably would spend it on something other than the bill. And we wouldn't recognize it as God's gift. And God says, okay, I'll just I'll make sure it's at the last possible moment so you know it's me. And here we're saying, I will look, I will gaze intently, and I will hope in my God, the God of my salvation. Micah is coming out of his depression realizing where he's supposed to be looking. Verse, six, uh, verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will hear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. Until he plead my case and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. I love this one. He's talking to his enemy, saying, enemy? Yeah. I, I love this. When I fall, not if I fall, when I fall, I will rise up. I will stand up again. He says, I will stand up again. Not if I fall. One of the things we must keep in remembrance, it's not a question of if we're going to fail. It's a question of when I fail, what am I going to do? And God says, get up. Get back up. When a baby's learning to walk and they fall down, they get back up. And if they didn't get back up, they'd never learn to walk. When somebody learns to ride a bike, most people don't remember learning to ride a bike that much, but you know, when you've raised kids, you've helped them learn to ride a bike and they fall down. The worst thing you can let happen to that kid is when they fall down is to not encourage them to get back up on the bike. Because they probably never learned to ride the bike if they don't get back up. We will fall. We are learning to walk with God in righteousness. It takes time. We will fail. We will fall down. And we've got enemies, we've got family members sometimes watching for us to fall down so they can criticize us. 
And God says, get back up. I'm right here. I'm going to help you back up. And Mike is saying, when I fall, I shall rise up. When I sit in the darkness, the obscurity, God is my light. Here is where Mike is coming around to it. He says, everything's bad, everything's bad. Now God's kind of illuminating his path. Have you been there where you're focusing on all the problems and it seems dark, everything seems wrong? And then all of a sudden God steps in and he brings light with him. Sometimes it means that we came to church or we listened to a study or we sang, listened to a song or we opened our Bible, we prayed, and God comes in with the light. God will always come in with the light. In, in Psalm 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Oftentimes, we sit in darkness. Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is our light. He's our guide. He's our leader. We get in trouble when we walk far enough away from him that we don't see the light. But all we got to do is look around. One thing about light is light always overcomes darkness. Darkness does not overcome light. If you are in a dark place and you turn on a flashlight or, or strike a match, the darkness flees from the light. Now, only in stories and movies do you see the darkness extinguish the light. It doesn't happen in reality. Okay? But... When we're looking for God, his light will shine. And all we got to do is look for the light. If we, the light will always shine out. So when we are in a dark place, we need to start looking for God. God, where are you at? I, and it's not God who walked away from us. It's us that walked away from God. And we just need to take a moment and say, God, where are you? And we'll see that light and, and return. God is always ready for us to return. He is not a God, and we're going to see this later on in this chapter, he's not a God that says, sorry, you walked away, you can't come back. We as humans might do that. Nope, you, you've let me down too many times, I'm not going to trust you anymore. But for God, he says he's full of mercy. He wants us to come back. He knows that we're going to fail. He knows, who, he knows our heart. He knows our innermost being is, is wicked and it will fall away from him. But his goal is to crucify that innermost being and make us more like him with each passing day. And here we're saying that getting back up, he's a light. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, the, the accusations of the Lord, because I have sinned. This is something that we as Christians should always remember. When God is judging us, we deserve it. And we should be ready to accept whatever that judgment is. God will be merciful. He doesn't give us the full force of our sin. If he did, we'd be in hell. If he gave us the full force of what we deserve, we'd be in hell. Because the wages of sin is death. But he meets it out with just enough to make us realize that we've done wrong. Same thing, that the difference between disciplining a child and abusing a child. Abuse is designed to just hurt with no lesson to be, be brought in. Discipline will hurt, but it's tempered with judgment and justice. It's just enough pain to make them realize that there's sin involved and they need to correct their life. And this is, you know, I've said the story, my dad was same as most fathers, you know, he goes, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you as, he get, as he's getting ready to spank me. And I can remember growing up thinking, yeah, right, that doesn't hurt you at all. I'm the one that's got the, the butt that can't be sat on for a couple hours. Until I had to discipline and spank my first, my first child. And I'm going, I don't want to do this. When I had to discipline my first child, I understood what my dad said. The last thing I wanted to do was cause pain to my child. But I also understood that without the pain, there would be no discipline to learn not to be disobedient. 
God understands that with us. He understands that we need the pain to associate the pain with the disobedience so that we know not to do it again. And the pain has to be enough that it is pain. And that's why as my kids got older, spankings on my kids didn't work, you know, weren't, weren't going to be the big deal when they got older, but saying they couldn't drive the car, couldn't watch, go, go out to the, to the movies with their friends, those were the things that caused more pain to them and really caused <coughs> discipline and was understood as pain. You know, spanking a teenager usually isn't any good. No. You know, unless you're really strong and then, you, then you're still in danger of really hurting them. So, you know, you need other ways to, to discipline. And God is saying here, or Micah saying, God, you've disciplined me and I'm ready to accept it. I have sinned. And I will accept it until you plead my case and execute the judgment and bring me forth into the light. God, eventually you're going to feel that I've had enough. Justice and mercy will be met out. You're not, his goal, God's goal is never to give us so much punishment that we are beat beyond recognition and can't, can't move forward. His goal is to make sure that we don't want to do it again. And this is the purpose of all discipline. The discipline must be enough pain to make us understand that we don't want to do it again. And that could be just the rewards of the sin that we get, that we've earned. If somebody commits fornication, ends up with an unwanted child, that's quite a discipline. Should make you desire not to do it again. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work with some people. I got a neighbor just down the street that's got five kids from five different, different people and it had their first one at 13 years old. You know, it's kind of sad. That's a person who's not learning their lesson about fornication. Probably doesn't know God either. But you see what ends up happening. God says, here's, the, here's your reward for this uh, action that you've done. You know, the wages of sin of death. You know, the, what we earn from sin is death. Not really the wages we want. You know, man has tried hard to renegotiate the deal with God for sin to not be death, and that's why they have all these people who believe that if you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay. Because they're trying to say, God, I don't like this idea. I don't like the wages of sin being death. You know, let's, have, let's have a different discussion here. And God says, nope, this is, this is my discussion. This is your wage. And turn to me. All he wants is people to turn to him and accept him. Verse 10. Then she that is my enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down at the mire of the streets. Eventually the people who mock us and attack us will get what they deserve. We've shared many times where I've seen this happen over the years, and then there's times when it doesn't seem like they get what they deserve, but they will always get what they deserve at some point. And, you know, the one thing we've got to be careful of when we look at somebody is they may look good on the outside, but have a lot of trouble in their heart. A lot of times you look at people who seem to be wealthy, they seem to have everything they want and they are empty inside and have, have great desires and needs in their heart. But everybody looking at them wants to be them. They've got the big house, they've got the nice car. You know, they look like they've got everything all put together in their life and they're total, but they're totally unhappy for those who finally get to know them. I've heard that story more than once where the rich person says, I don't have anything. I want what somebody else has. And here, Mike is saying, his enemy is eventually going to get what they deserve. They're going to fall. They're going to be trodden down. We just need to learn to be patient. Why do, why do the heathen rage and the people seem to be getting what they do? What they, what they want and not being judged is what the psalmist says because God hasn't worked yet. He will step forward and say, 
you're going to get what you deserve. Ultimately, they'll get it when they stand at the white throne judgment and find that they've rejected God. Ultimately, if they don't come to God. But patience is what we need. Verse 11, in the day that your, wall, your walls are built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day shall they come unto you from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from the sea to the sea, from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. Here he's looking out at the people of Israel. Now remember, he's prophesying toward the end of Israel's time. They're getting ready to go into captivity. And he's saying, eventually you're coming home. Okay? When, we, when you look at this, this is just him saying, you're going to be judged, but God's going to bring you back. In the day that the walls will be rebuilt, for him that was looking forward to the days of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, after the captivity of Israel and Judah, when they got to come back and build the walls of Jerusalem, build the temple. And their land was healed. And their land was healed. It was desolate for a long period of time. And remember the reason, one, one of the reasons the, that they went into for 70 years is because they had 490 years where they didn't let the land rest every seventh year. And God says, my land will get it, have its Sabbath. Now they were judged for many other things, their idolatry and everything else, but it was the time that God said you're going to be was set by them not obeying him and, and not letting the land rest. But yes, they were idolatrous. Yes, they were rebellious and all these other things. And God says, when you come back, you know, they didn't even repent to get back. You know, they, it was just that they were sent for a certain period of time. But God says, when you come back, for his children, when we walk away from God, he says, when you come back, I'm going to be waiting for you. When you come back. And it's amazing to watch people who, who say that they're Christians and they've done a lot of bad things, they've walked away from God, and they come back to church. They come back to God. And you know God welcomes them back and says, welcome back. He doesn't say, what are you doing back at the, uh, what are you doing here, get away. He says, welcome back. He's the prodigal son's father, out there with the robe, waiting for them to return, ready to celebrate their return. And this is true with every one of his children that, that walk away and come back. He says, welcome back. He is a God that's so full of mercy, so full of grace. When we fall, he says, let me help you, lift, let me help you back up. In another verse, he says that, that his arms are underneath us so that when we fall, he catches us. Okay? We, don't even, we don't even get to fall as his children completely. He catches us and stands us back up and says, come on back. Come back into the family. You are welcome. When we think of the price he paid for us, something I was just thinking about just, just the other day. When Jesus went on the cross and became sin, the Father turned his back on Jesus. Do you realize the Father and the Holy Spirit paid as heavy a price for our salvation as Jesus did? They were separated from each other. They felt the same pain that he felt of that broken fellowship with each other. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all paid the price for our redemption because they had to break fellowship with Jesus because he became sin. They felt the pain. Yes, Jesus took the physical pain in his body, but we've already talked, that wasn't the worst of the pain that he had to go through. Breaking a fellowship that had been for all of eternity was the pain that the Father also had to go through as Jesus became sin and had to be separated. The Father felt pain for our salvation. We talk about how much he loves us. He knew that that was going to hurt him. He knew the pain he was going to feel, yet he was willing to do it. 
Just one more reason, why would he ever create us in the first place? Knowing that the Jesus was going to suffer and he was going to suffer, and the Holy Spirit would suffer to buy us back. Just the enormity of the cost to buy us back. Because he loves us so much. I, I, I just find that mind-blowing. Verse 14. Feed, my peop- feed your people with your rod, the flock of your inheritance, which dwells solitarily in the wood in the midst of Cal- Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show them marvelous things. And nation, the nation shall see and be confounded in all their might that they shall lay their hand upon their mouth and their ears shall be as their as shall be deaf they shall lick the dust like a serpent they shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you this is talking about God restoring his people feed literally means pastor or shepherd your your flock this is how much God cares for us. He is our shepherd and our protector. Doesn't mean as much to us that never have, have shepherded uh, sheep as it did to the people who heard it. But you know, when you think about how dumb sheep are, if you've ever been around sheep, they are dumb. Yeah. Uh, I read, read the article when David says that he will lead us by still water. It is this person said that if you take a, a sheep and put it near running water and a leaf floats by, that the sheep will actually fall over as they follow that leaf in the water. You know, uh, I had a friend who had about eight or nine sheep. And there was this little tiny hill out in, in where he kept them. Just enough for a sheep if they got in the right spot, couldn't see the house. If they got into that spot, they would stand still and start crying. <laughs> and all they had to do was take a step and they'd see the house and, and be okay. But I was at his house and I'm going, what's wrong with that, what's wrong with that sheep that's crying so much? He goes, oh, it got behind the hill and can't, can't see the house. And he'd go out and he'd call the sheep and the sheep would hear his voice and come around the hill and, and be happy. Sheep are pretty dumb animals. When God calls us sheep, he is not complimenting us. And he says, I will feed my people. Feed your people. Protect them with your staff. They dwell solitarily in the woods by themselves. They feed in Bashan and Gilead. Just to help you with the map on here, you've got Mount Carmel is on the Mediterranean, uh, due west of the southern part of of the Sea of Galilee, all the way against the Mediterranean. Great trees and forests used to be there and, and was a great place for wood. Bashan is to the northeast of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. It is a great, or was a great, place to feed cattle. And they had great cattle that grew there. It was prize cattle came from Bashan. We talked about Bashan in, in one of the Psalms where he says, you know, we, you, we will be like the, the, the oxen of Bashan. It was a place of great uh, abundance for cattle, and it grew the prized cattles. Gilead is on the southeast part of, of the Lake, uh, Sea of Galilee, down along the Jordan River, and there's all kinds of bombs, and we talk about the bomb of Gilead. They were famous for their medicinal herbs and, and, and combinations of things, and it was a prized land also. The, Bashan and Gilead were the place where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, we want to settle here. This is good land for cattle. He's saying, you know, my people want to dwell in what they think is good land. I'm going to give them good grazing land to be, be able to be living on. And then it goes on and says, As according to the days that they're coming out of the land of Egypt, I will show unto him marvelous things, things beyond their power. God has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we see the story going back all the time to the God who took you out of Egypt. All the 
miracles that he did is he took them out of Egypt. The plagues against, against them, the crossing of the Red Sea, and by implication he's talking about having fed them in the wilderness with manna and, and water and, and protected them. And it says, by marvelous things beyond power, the nation shall see and be confounded. They will be disconcerted. They will be disappointed. You realize when Israel became a nation in 1948, the enemies of Israel were confounded and disappointed. They tried to attack them right after they became a nation, before they had a time to really get an army, and then they got beat because God miraculously saved Israel from those early attacks. And Israel grew. God has always been protecting of his people, except when he has allowed them to be conquered because of their sin and their disobedience. But he says, I am going to protect you. Your enemies will close their mouths and not listen because of the victories that you're going to get. They're not going to want to see them. They're not going to want to believe them. They're not going to even want to talk about them. And you know, it's amazing, even today, how the Arab nations all around Israel won't talk that much about the victories. They'll just say they don't deserve to be a nation and all of that, but they, they also fear Israel greatly because Israel seems to win miraculously. They cannot take them out, and yet they want to destroy them so bad that they can, they, they can feel it in their bones that they want to destroy them, and yet they keep failing. They shoot them with mortar, mortar attacks all the time. They do all these things. They try to attack them with military, and they just don't win because God's not going to let them. And this is what Mike is talking about. When Israel is protected, nothing can take them out. When God says they, they need judgment, he lets them be taken into captivity. And this is part of what Micah is saying. The captivity's coming. Don't be so determined that you're always going to win because you have rejected God. And this is how they were. God, we're, this is your, your, Jerusalem's your city. We're your people. There's no way you're going to let us be defeated. Sometimes as Christians, we, we kind of do that same thing. God, we're your people. You won't let us suffer. And God says, you're not following me. You're not in the center of my will. I'm going to let you suffer a little while. You see it over and over in Israel's day. In the days of the judges, every 30 or 40 years, they, they would be taken over by somebody. Then we saw in the kings where they, they stayed for close to 500 years, but then they sinned and God said, okay, fine, we're going to let you go back into captivity. Then he returned them to their land. And they went into sin in the days of, and in the Roman days when they rebelled finally and they were kicked back out of their country again. Now they're back in their country. This will be their last time in their country because God is going to say, even when the Antichrist rises up and God's going to defend them and start the millennial kingdom, this is their time where they get to stay in their country. And then in the new heaven and new earth, when Jerusalem comes down and God rules from Jerusalem, they'll be the center of everything again. Forever. For those who have received Christ. And that is what their ultimate looking forward is. That final time when Christ shall rule forever from Jerusalem as the king of the world. And we're looking at that time. It's coming soon. We're right on the cusp and we need to be ready for it. Then 18, we're going to see Micah having a really good conclusion. Who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our, their sins into the depths of the sea. You will perform the truth to Jacob and, and the mercy to J Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Do you hear the victory in this, song, in this part of it? Who is like God? I've said this over and over again. For us as Christians, we have a God that loves us. God has paid the payment for our sins. We are unique as Christians in the world of religion. Every other religion, you have to please the God. How do you please the God? 
you do more good. You crawl on your belly for, for miles to show that you're sorry for what you've done. You, you do all the good that you can do and try not to do bad. And hopefully you do enough good to overcome all the bad. And in certain, certain ones that have reincarnation, you keep living life until you get it right. Which really kind of amazing as you look is how evil and wicked things are getting. If you if you keep doing it, you're supposed to keep doing it until you get it right. Something's wrong with their system, because things are getting worse. And yet, they buy into all of this lies from Satan, and say, and we look at it, and he says, "Who is like unto our God? He pardons iniquity." I love this. He, it means that he forgives. He carries it away. God takes the iniquity we have off of us and takes it away. Our iniquity is placed under the blood of Christ, and God forgets it. That is a precious first start. He says he, he passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. This literally means that he walks past something that's stationary. It's our sin, our iniquity has been nailed to the cross of Jesus, covered by the blood, and God just walks past it and leaves it on the cross and walks away from it. Oh, how hard it is for us to leave our, our past on the cross, isn't it? We usually kind of take it to the cross and then we go, God, I'm giving you all of this, and then we walk away and we take it with us. Not like God does, where he walks away from it and leaves it at the cross. We like to carry it back away with us and try to beat ourselves up with it and, and judge and, and make life difficult for us. And God is saying, he just walks away from it. How can he walk away from it? Because he's judged it. He's put it on the cross. He has crucified it. He has destroyed it. And we can be totally free of it. And then it says, he retains not his anger forever. And that means... He doesn't hold on. He doesn't make his anger strong. We often will make our anger strong by entertaining it and thinking it over and thinking about it again and again and again and again. And again, we need to learn to forgive and just leave it behind. doesn't mean let them hurt us again over and over again, but it does mean that I quit thinking about what they've done to me and say, I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to retain their anger. He says, God does not retain his anger. Why? Because he delights in mercy. He delights. He takes pleasure in giving us mercy. Who is like our God? No other God out there is like our God who delights, who's looking for the opportunity to give mercy. Read about any of these other gods. Get into any of the mythology and everything, and these gods were not nice you know, all the gods are not nice people at all. None of them are. You know, Krishna is not a nice god. It's a god of war. Okay? And that's the major god of the Hindus, amongst their other million gods. Their, their major god is the god of war and anger and bitterness. Muhammad doesn't love his people. There's no love in, the, in, the, in, in, in their religion. You hope that you do more good and that somehow he'll be pleased enough with you to accept you. This is true of almost every worship out there. Matter of fact, all of them, as far as I know of, I've never found one where they had a God of love. Even the Jewish people do not picture God as a God of love in general. Even though the Old Testament talks about him being a God of love, they're always worried about are my sins covered? Have I done enough? Especially today when they've gone to do more good than bad because they don't have sacrificial services to cover their sins. But even in those days, the idea was I have to do enough good that God will be happy with me and, and, and I'll offer my sacrifice so that he'll cover the, the bad. But I still had to do the good so that he'll be pleased with me. Christianity is the place that says God says you deserve punishment, but he has a gift for you. Eternal life. He wants to love you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to have you in his presence. Again, we go back to the prodigal son. When the son comes back to the father, he's watching for that son. He's waiting for that son to come back. 
When Jesus told that story of the prodigal son, it was not a new story. They were used to those kind of stories. The, the son asking for his inheritance and squandering it and coming back on, on his knees to his father. The only thing was, Jesus changed the ending of the story. He changed it that the son was accepted and, and forgiven and brought back into the family. The way the story usually went is the son was beat and made into one of the lowest servants in the house because that's the way they would react. You were audacious enough to say you wanted my inheritance, you wished me dead, well, we're going to make you pay for it. I might make you a son sometime again in the future, but you're going to pay and you're going to pay with your service for a long time before I'm going to accept you again. Jesus turned that story on its head and said, the Father's there waiting for you to come back and accept you. This, when he told that story, shocked the listeners. That would be like us taking one of our stories and then changing the ending of it to a totally different ending. That's what he did with the story of the prodigal son. He changed the ending. The son didn't have to pay for his transgressions. The son didn't have to serve the father for, for decades before he became a son again. Being accepted was something they didn't understand. Because again, they didn't see a God of love. They didn't see mercy. They didn't see that integrity. It says, he will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will, ca and, and you will cast all their sin into the depths of the sea. Do you see here? He will turn again. God will turn again. He will have a compassion on us. On us. He will subdue our, our submission, our, our iniqu subdue our iniquities. And he will cast our sins into the deepest sea. All of this is God doing the work. How hard is it when you share the gospel with people, when they want to reject the gospel, the one thing you will almost always hear is that's too easy. It can't be that easy. It can't be all God. And in, indirectly or directly, they'll say, what is my part in this salvation? I've got to have a part. I've got to do something to deserve this. It's all mercy. It's all grace. The more we realize that everything about our relationship with God is grace, the better off we're going to be. If I in any way think that I play any part of my salvation and of the gifts that I get from God, I'm fooling myself. I'm deceiving myself. I'm setting myself up for failure. I do not have any part in it. All I am doing is say, God, I want that gift. <laughs> and he does everything. He is the one that turns us. He is the one that has compassion on us. He is the one that puts our iniquities away from us. He's the one that takes them away from us completely. He's the one that gives us the strength to be victorious over sin in our walk. And all I have to do is submit to him. And that's not much. I let him crucify my flesh. I let him indwell me. I let him fill me so much with the spirit that the spirit starts changing who I am into who he is. And I live him out as he's making the changes in me. This is the power of the gospel of God. He indwells me, he changes me, and then he lives out of me. And then, as I've said over and over again, and then he has the wonderful thing is that he'll give us all the gifts and rewards for letting him do all of this. The easiness of living the Christian life, surrender to God, let him crucify. Let him change. We talked at one point about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills our body and changes who we are. And remember we talked about the baptism being like the pickle. The, the, fruit, the vegetables are thrown into the vinegar and they just sit there, absorb the vinegar, and are changed from the, from the vegetable into a pickle with total different characteristics, different taste, different texture. And what did they do to become a pickle? Stayed in the vinegar. For us, we stay in the spirit, and he changes us into spiritual beings that are more obedient to him, that follow his way. And it takes time. Just as it takes to make a pickle, a vegetable into a pickle, it takes time for the spirit for us to stay submerged in the spirit and be changed. 
God desires to do it. He is the one that does all the work. And then he goes in, you will perform the truth to Jacob and the merciful to Abraham because you have sworn it. God has promised to do the work. We need to rest in that promise. Quit trying to find out, God, how much, what do I have to do to deserve this? Nothing. You can't do enough to deserve it. God, what do, I, you know, what do you want me to do? Just rest, be crucified. Doesn't fit well with our flesh though, does it? Our flesh wants to stand up and say, God, I've got to do something. And God says, no, you just let me crucify you. You let me indwell you. You let me submerge you into my spirit and change you. And we walk victoriously by, by having faith rest in him. We are already in our Sabbath because we are supposed to be resting in Christ who finished the work. He finished all of the law. He completed it all. He is at the Father's right hand seated. He is at rest. We are his bride being changed in the spirit. We are to rest and let him do the work. That is easy to do and yet hard to do because our flesh doesn't like to have nothing to do. We like to have something that we can be proudfully looking at. Now, look at what I have done over here. I, I have been this good. No, it is. if there's any good in it, God did it. If you think it's good and you did it, then it's not good. For eternity, anyway. And so he's saying God delights in mercy. We want to remember that God delights in mercy. He wants to give mercy. He wants to give us good things. And he's a good father that wants and loves us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at you. Lord, we thank you that you delight in mercy, that you want to bless us, that you want to give us good things. And we ask that you go with us today in your son's precious name. Amen.